Hey, what's that sound? Oh, it's my dogs. Scratching at the door! Scratching at the door! The following is an in-depth story analysis. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance is the cinematic equivalent of being hung over. This movie was drinking heavily the night before I saw it. It has a general direction, it sort of looks like the people making it have made a movie before, but it's stumbling through, going through the motions, and just hoping to get to the end without totally falling apart. It's hazy and wobbly in places, it cannot sit still, and it's disoriented. I mean, it makes me disoriented too, but it itself seems disoriented. And like a person that drank heavily the night before, it engages in odd behavior, like constantly zooming in and out of frame in inappropriate places and going into a weird fisheye lens slash prism effect in fights between two characters using that from both of their perspectives. What does it mean? Nothing. It's just a movie that hasn't sobered up yet. I can't imagine what it would be like watching this movie inebriated myself. It's popular to say bizarre movies like this are only fun to watch when you're drunk, but I wouldn't recommend that with this. I can feel some of the effects alcohol brings on just by watching this in the first place. Spirit of Vengeance was released five years after the first Ghost Rider, and it's a jarring tone shift. 2007's Ghost Rider was a typical mainstream superhero origin film that tried to take an occult anti-hero and make him accessible to families. Spirit of Vengeance tries to play to an audience that already likes ultra-violent, demonic, horror-inspired comic fare, and gets closer tonally to what I think an authentic Ghost Rider movie should be. It's very heavy metal, it looks more like a biker picture, and it puts the supernatural mythology front and center. But as weird as it is, it only plays at being the 70s grindhouse thing it's stylized after. It certainly takes more risks than the first movie, but they're not always intelligent risks, and it turns out to be safer than it wants to let on. Directors Mark Neville Dean and Brian Taylor seem to really want to make a hyper-violent rated-R Ghost Rider movie and can't, so they make a movie that feels like one of those but never really goes there. I've never seen another movie that revels this much in violence that's hardly there. Like, it's trying to trick me into enjoying the destruction and dismemberment it never actually gives me. It's almost brilliant in that way. I remembered this movie as being pretty rough. It's really not. It just has a rough attitude. It's a Metallica video. Okay, that's not fair. Most of those are shot better than this. This is a disturbed video. The live-action ones, not the ones with McFarlane animation. It feels real edgy and gritty, and lots of people die, but when you look past the noise and the driving metal orchestral soundtrack, which in places is actually pretty cool, and the legitimately freaky Ghost Rider face that changes jaw sizes and jolts forward erratically to unnerve his enemies, the violence is pretty tame. There is almost no blood at all. Ghost Rider beats most of his enemies by making them poof in a quick plume of fire with his chains. He just snaps his chains and they're gone like they were never there. I have to keep reminding myself I'm not watching gameplay footage. He's a hack-and-slash character, mowing guys down like Kratos and God of War. The Ghost Rider entity is supposed to feed on guilty souls. It's pretty unnerving when he actually faces someone down and sucks on their soul, but he doesn't do it that much. Does he get their souls when he fire chains them to death? Or do their souls just go right to hell in the first place? I suspect the filmmakers don't know and hope I'm not asking such questions. 
I will ask lots more of those kinds of questions in this review. It's an action scene, and he's an anti-hero, so he has the license to kill, never mind his motivations. And never mind that it's not any rougher than Buffy staking vampires. Even though I'm totally supposed to be like, Wow, did you see that? Look how brutal it is! It's a lot like the Spawn movie in that way. And that was 15 years earlier. Now, I'm not all about the gratuitous violence or anything, but that seems to be what this is going for. It has a cookie-cutter story designed around wild and crazy action scenes. It wants to be mindless fun, the kind of carnage you can laugh at because it's not realistic, and it's not commenting on the serious consequences of its violence. I mean, it talks about the consequences of Johnny Blaze becoming ghostwriter and what he does to people, but that's way more broad and ethereal. That's about people's eternal souls before it's about physically hurting people. This is a dark cartoon for adults. It's not like Kick-Ass, which is about the consequences of real violence but also revels in it, and I have a hard time with that there. This I'm fine with. But it should be a rated R bloodbath if that's what it wants to be. It took a few more years, but superhero movies have proven that they don't need a younger demographic to rake in the dough for a hard R comic book property. There is an audience for this kind of thing. There may not be the audience for Ghost Rider specifically that there was for Deadpool or for Logan, but even in 2012, I seriously doubt it would have lost much at the box office if it was made exclusively for the people it was sold to. I imagine the same audience was there that would have been if they made exactly the movie they were selling. I think it might have done better. That's not to say that this is a movie for kids. I think the most brutal things that happen happened to Danny, the typical child MacGuffin of the movie. His mom's terrible, no good, very bad boyfriend Kerrigan, no relation to Nancy, kidnaps him for the devil. Yep, that's the main conflict. I guess the devil, who is on Earth, can't handle stealing a preteen kid away from his ordinary mom who has no real way to protect herself. Kerrigan is just horrible to this kid. He smacks him around for fun. He threatens to break his face just for talking in the car. And when Danny escapes and Kerrigan catches him, he ties him up and puts a blindfold on him. Kerrigan even breaks Danny's ankle when he tries to run away, which is the only time in the movie I really cringed at something that was supposed to be painful. And that's just because of a sound effect. I don't even think the kid is here to aim the movie more at general audiences like the kid in Spawn. That all makes it stranger that it holds back as much as it does. It tries to dupe us into thinking we're watching something really perverse or raunchy with stuff like Ghost Rider peeing fire. Oh man, never thought you'd see that in a Marvel movie. Excuse me, a movie based on a Marvel property distributed by Columbia. Crazy to think this came out the same year as The Avengers and The Amazing Spider-Man, not to mention The Dark Knight Rises. It was put under the Marvel Knights label, which I guess would have been a series of films about dark, gritty Marvel heroes, but it never got off the ground. The Marvel Netflix shows essentially succeeded at doing that line, but ironically, Ghost Rider wasn't there. The rights did revert back to Marvel during that period, and Ghost Rider did show up on a Marvel TV show, but it wasn't in the same place with all their gritty urban stuff. It was on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC. And honestly, he looks about as good there as he does in this movie. And that's not a slight to this movie. I'm just kind of impressed with what they were able to do on a TV budget. But anyway, Ghost Rider... Peeing fire. We're really pushing envelopes now. That sort of thing is few and far between, and it comes out of nowhere. It's not even a thing that happens in the movie. Like, you see it, but it doesn't actually happen. It comes up when Danny is asking Johnny Blaze what being Ghost Rider is like. 
which is a fun exchange. He asks if he can turn any vehicle into a fiery Ghost Rider rig, and those are the most fun things in the movie. The Ghost Rider crane is awesome. And Danny goes down a list of things, ending with camel. That's fun. And then the kid asks what happens when Johnny has to pee while he's transformed into Ghost Rider, which sounds like a thing a kid would ask. I think the answer should be, well, my body is totally different when I'm the writer. I got a flaming skull, and I'm a scary skeleton guy, so I don't really have to go to the bathroom. The writer doesn't need to drink anything, and if he did, it would go right through him. But Johnny doesn't say that. He says he pees fire, and it's awesome. And then we see it, just because it's an insane thing to show Ghost Rider doing. It's not that modern sitcom thing of mentioning a thing, and then jumping to a flashback of it happening, like in Jim Carrey's show Kidding. It's like theoretical Ghost Rider peeing. He's in front of a blank black void. And later on, when Danny is talking with Rourke, the devil, we flash to it again. And Danny starts laughing, confirming that what we're seeing is what he imagines this would look like. Which is the closest to a setup and payoff gag this movie ever gets. Now, I'm rolling my eyes at this entire idea, but I'm sure someone thinks that's funny, and a raunchier ghostwriter movie that just does stuff like that wouldn't be for me, but at least it wouldn't come out of left field. That's a Deadpool joke. And Deadpool has lots of stuff like that at various levels of obscene. If you're gonna do something like that, just do it. Or mention it in the first scene and then actually do something with it in scene later. You know, like a setup and a payoff like in an action scene or something, I thought maybe Ghost Rider would use that to torch a bunch of bad guys in the third act. Nope, it's just more theoretical fire peeing. I knew there was a reason I hadn't reviewed this yet. How I spent this long on that bit. Anyway, this is sort of a sequel to the 2007 movie in that it's Nick Cage again, and there's not really anything that I noticed that's a blatant contradiction of anything in the first movie. The attitude is completely different. Cage's performance and Blaze's characterization are totally different, but those things are easily explained away, and in the spirit of making a less watered-down, more adult Ghost Rider movie, I, for one, don't mind the tone shift or even the ambiguity of what continuity it's in. If this one were a lot better than that first movie, it's all you'd need. The origin, much like in The Incredible Hulk, is given to us right out the gate, in this case, right after the teaser. Johnny Blaze wanted to save his dad from dying, made a deal with the devil, got the Ghost Rider put in him, and now he's fighting to keep it at bay. So he's gone to Europe, and like Bruce Banner, isolates himself in the middle of nowhere so no one will get hurt when the monster comes out. Come to think of it, he's exactly like the Hulk in this movie. Made a big mistake that gave him a literal demon that comes out and hurts people, and he's paying for that choice, wishing to either get rid of it or to die. And that movie only came out two years before this. Maybe the reason I didn't compare them so much then was because the attempted suicide scene was cut out of The Incredible Hulk, and I didn't know about that yet. But yeah, last movie doesn't really inform this one, but they kind of could work together if you just assume that the Ghost Rider was really a totally separate entity from Johnny Blaze, like the Spawn costume and Al Simmons, which the original was ambiguous about, but this makes them totally separate entities. Johnny's constantly trying to keep the Ghost Rider from coming out, like Bruce Banner and the Hulk. And if you take everything Johnny talks about in the voiceover at the beginning as stuff that happened for some reason in between the movies, like the writer getting stronger all the time and Johnny becoming somewhat unhinged as a result, it kind of works. Although I don't know why that wasn't happening before. This Johnny feels like a different character. He's still eccentric and has weird social cues, but instead of eating jelly beans, he's popping pills. 
we're never told what kind they are, downing huge pitchers of water when he's done being the ghostwriter, and he doesn't have that southern charm and charisma he had in the first movie. That first character could have turned into this one, I guess, like Buffy Season 3 Wesley gradually becoming Angel Season 4 Wesley, except, of course, we didn't see it happen, and the movie doesn't make it clear what this guy was supposed to be before he started to lose it. It is a step in the right direction tonally, but the villains are still bland, the characters and ideas serve the plot instead of propelling it forward, and the lore, though front and center, is undefined and uninteresting. The movie immediately hits me with the three strikes of cliché dark magic stories. A prophecy, a child who is the spawn of evil or destined to be bad in some way, and a MacGuffin everybody's after. This one gets a bonus strike for making the kid the MacGuffin itself. This movie is Electro, which also has all three, except this is marginally better because it's not as boring and the kid isn't irritating in this. Of course, you could have one, two, or even all three of these and ultimately turn out to be a great movie, but these played-out elements have to come naturally in a story that transcends the stereotypes. It has to be a great story that can't be told without those elements, one that reminds us why those are universal gems we can't get away from in a lot of stories, instead of using them as cheap devices to fall back on when we're not inspired. This one mostly does the latter. The prophecy is that the devil is going to transform his consciousness into his earthly conceived son on a certain day, and he's trying to find his son so he can make sure that happens when the stars align. But first, he has to find and capture his son, so he uses Nadia's psychotic, one-dimensional, nothing-evil boyfriend to do it. Because, for some reason, he didn't think to keep tabs on the kid, and again, can't handle this menial task on his own. We're told he needs minions, but I don't know why he can't do stuff like this himself. Years ago, the devil made a deal with the boy's mother, Nadia, to conceive a son with him in order to save her life when she was dropped out a window and was bleeding to death. The devil is in the same body he had when he made the deal with Johnny, who just so happens to be on the same continent they're all on now at the same time, and his body is starting to wear out, because corporeal bodies can't handle the devil's power forever. Clearly, Johnny and Nadia's backstories are supposed to be paralleled, and since Johnny's deal with the devil is the worst thing he ever did, and hers, in her mind, is the best thing she ever did, because it gave her this great son, Danny, who is the devil's son, but not just straight-up evil because of that, something really interesting could have been done with that, but we never really go anywhere with it. In an intrusive, expository voiceover, Johnny tells us that the devil has taken many forms over the years, including Jerry Springer, because that's some biting satire in 2012, and Johnny also says he doesn't know anything at all about why this happens, why the devil has to walk the earth, any of it. Maybe he doesn't know, Johnny tells us. The movie throws its hands in the air, makes everything about the mythology a mystery to never be solved, because all of this is just an excuse for dark, wacky action and disorienting footage of Romania. And I'm not saying it all requires explanation, it just watches lazy because it keeps focusing on it, but it doesn't want to give us any answers. If we didn't keep talking about all this stuff, I wouldn't mind as much. If it's supposed to just be stupid fun, stop giving me just enough to feel like I'm supposed to be invested. It's too plot-driven to be as fun as it wants to be, and it's too story-driven not to be frustrating 
that I don't know anything. How does the devil usually move his consciousness from one body to the next? This is clearly the first time he's ever attempted to do it with a son. Was Rourke some dude whose body he stole, or did he create it from the ground up? If he could impregnate a human woman and she could deliver a child that would grow up and become a vessel for him to take over, that had exactly all his powers, even though it's only half human, and would house his consciousness forever without falling apart, why didn't he do this eons ago? I guess he had to wait for this prophecy. Would it, like, not work if he did it prematurely? But we know free will trumps destiny because Johnny beats him at the end and subverts the prophecy, so yeah, I guess he could have done that. But maybe the devil didn't know that? Maybe he bought into all the religious propaganda about himself passed down by the monks all these years? That prophecy written down somewhere? Maybe his tattoos on those scary-looking monk faces in the catacombs, maybe? I don't know, because we're not told about where the prophecy came from, why it's not in the regular scriptures. It sounds like an important thing to leave out, unless there's a secret devil's Bible like in Constantine. And we're not told what all that scribbling on the monks' faces is about. I don't know how anything works. So the story can cheat and get away with whatever it decides to make happen. It also makes it so I kind of don't care at all. Constantine, though it's got its issues, handled everything this movie is trying to do a lot better. And it did it seven years earlier and two years before the first Ghost Rider came out. The silly, made-up Judeo-Christian stuff was clever and decently thought out there, and it established parameters and stayed within them for the most part. There's a war with heaven and hell, and there are rules set up in that war. None of that at all is here. The mythology in this movie is confusing and old hat. So we have a drunken but good-natured monk played by Idris Elba named Moreau, who is Johnny's guide and sometimes sidekick. He's the least typical and dull character in the movie and has a real personality. His obsession with ancient wine is fun, and he has the most on-screen chemistry with Nick Cage. But he's not any more fleshed out than anybody else. I don't know anything about his background, why he's a monk, how he got so jaded that he drowns himself in alcohol just to get through his day, and his disillusionment is the big thing he has in common with Johnny, but it's not any more explored than what he has in common with Nadia. He also may have a death wish like Johnny, but I can't be sure. So when they go on their mission to save Danny at the end, it's a suicide mission for Moreau just to be a distraction so Johnny can take a shot against Rourke, and it feels unnecessary. Like, because this guy is quirky and quippy, and the engine moving the rescue along the whole movie, I'm supposed to applaud when he goes out in a blaze of glory, without questioning why he even had to do that. Surely they could have come up with a different plan that didn't require that sacrifice. At the beginning of the movie, Moreau goes to Johnny Blaze for help. Johnny agrees, not because saving people is the right thing to do, but because Moreau promises to take away his cure if he does. Johnny lets the Ghost Rider out to rescue the boy from his captors, and on the road with Danny and his mother, he develops a familial affection for them in the precious few moments of downtime we get in the movie, which is when it gets closer to making me care about anything that's happening, and then ruins it by building character stuff it screws up later. Johnny has a really awkward and sloppy character arc, which is weirdly messed up by revelations in the mythology. So let's break this down. First, Johnny wants one of two things, either to die or to be rid of the Ghost Rider. Okay, that's a fine starting place. We find that there's more humanity and compassion left in him than he's letting on after he saves Nadia and Danny, when he tells Danny that the evil things inside of both of them are not who they are. This is supposed to be his connection to the kid. 
Their powers may come from an evil place, but they can be used for good. This is the thematic crux of the movie. Free will versus predestination. Doesn't matter where it came from, it can be whatever you want it to be. We all have a dark side, and we all have a choice in how we use it. Johnny seems to be a hypocrite here, and it looks like his arc will be about learning to follow his own advice. He's still trying to get rid of the Ghost Rider when he says that, even though he's starting to care about these people and his actions aren't entirely self-motivated now. Danny is jealous of him and angry that he isn't practicing what he preaches. He's trying to lose his evil, which again he claims they can make work for them, but Danny doesn't have the luxury of losing his, it's a part of him. It's also the thing that makes this new father figure so relatable to him. If Johnny exorcises the Ghost Rider, Danny is more alone in the world. Now that's all good stuff in theory. The reality of it is that Johnny can't control the Ghost Rider, and it's not the same thing as having a dark side. The Ghost Rider is a possessing spirit, which Johnny got through a selfish choice, as he describes it. He says he didn't sign the deal with the devil for his father, he did it for himself. And in so doing, he put everyone around him in danger. The Ghost Rider doesn't just judge really bad people and take their souls, it knows everyone has a dark side and everyone has sinned, no matter how slightly compared to whack jobs like Kerrigan. So it sees everyone is guilty. Danny may not understand all that, and his feelings are understandable until it's explained to him, but the movie perplexingly takes his side completely. Completely. When Johnny and Moreau get the boy and his mother safely to the monastery in the catacombs, Moreau upholds his end of their bargain and separates Johnny from the writer. In a pretty lame ritual that's supposed to be so dangerous, Moreau makes sure Johnny confesses his deepest sin and takes communion so he'll be absolved just in case he dies and can go to heaven. I like that part. But then he goes into a bright room, has a drugged out experience where he spins around on the floor a lot and flashes back to stuff in his past, and when he wakes up, the writer is gone. Well, that was easier than Moreau described. If it was that dangerous, I'd love to know why nothing bad happened to you. Conveniently, this is the exact moment Kerrigan shows up and kidnaps Danny and Nadia again. Now Blackout, though he's never called that that I noticed, given the power by the devil to make anything organic decay. There's a scene where he keeps touching food he can't eat because it disintegrates in his hand, but that doesn't happen with a Twinkie because there's nothing organic or natural about those. Ha ha ha. Can we all agree Twinkie jokes are kind of played out now? I mean, I want that to be funny, but I've seen so many Twinkie jokes. After Ghostbusters and Zombieland et al., IGN did a top six list of Twinkie references in movies in the year 2012, nine months after this came out, and this movie is not in that list. Now, I'm not saying that's because it's not funny. I'm saying that's because nobody saw this movie. But it was already kind of the obvious place to go for that gag. Anyway, Johnny immediately regrets getting rid of the writer, because now he has to try to save Danny and his mom again without it. He decides getting rid of the writer was self-motivated like the deal that gave it to him in the first place, and so he's learning to play the deck he was dealt, I guess. I think it's supposed to be a John Constantine thing, where Johnny is supposed to be figuring out how not to keep compounding his mistakes with the same kind of mistake. But the logical fallacy there for me is that he wasn't just giving up power or the personification of his own dark side, he was giving up a demon with a mind of its own that is, in his words, getting stronger all the time and wants to feed on everyone around him. It's a total liability. It doesn't matter what good the Ghost Rider might be able to do if he can't control it. 
Johnny's gonna feel a lot worse if that demon, say, uses the penance stare on the kid's mom and kills her, like it tried to do earlier in the movie, and was only stopped because Danny can control the writer. So I guess as long as this kid is around and Johnny can be sure he doesn't go evil, keeping the writer is a good idea. That doesn't sound like a surefire plan to me. And I think the movie knows this arc is flimsy because it introduces a backstory for the ghostwriter just before Johnny loses it. That's weirdly kind of paralleled with Johnny and his getting the ghostwriter in the first place. Like the ghostwriter is driving him insane, but the writer was also at one point a good entity that was driven insane. It turns out it used to be an angel, not a demon, named Zaratos, the spirit of justice, and it went mad in hell, becoming a perverted version of itself. Now the spirit of vengeance. Yeah, it's a little on the nose. Another superhero movie about justice versus vengeance, and the same entity not only represents both, but is called the spirit of each of them. So even though Johnny didn't know about all that, he's supposed to be in the wrong all this time for not hanging on to what he thought was a demon that gets out and sucks the souls from whoever is around. And even when he does know that, what does it matter? It's an angel that went insane! It wasn't magically turned evil, it lost its mind. So because it used to be an angel, Johnny is supposed to trust it? or trust that he can somehow tap into the good it used to have, but he doesn't even feel bad about any of that until after he's lost it. It's not like he has some conversation with the ghostwriter where, like, he gets through to it and it stops being insane somehow. I don't really know why Moreau tells him all that before he throws him into the detox cave and he loses the writer. They don't have a tough conversation about whether this changes anything or whether getting rid of the writer is the wrong thing to do. Johnny feels bad about disappointing the kid earlier as he plans to go through with the exorcism, but he doesn't seem to have any misgivings about actually doing it before it happens. So then at the end, Danny can suddenly use the powers he didn't know he had to bring back the Ghost Rider and put it in Johnny's body again. It's like Amanda Rogers in the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, True Q. She grows up not realizing she has the immortal powers of the Q, and when she finds out, now she has pretty much no problem using her powers. Except at least there, she kept accidentally using them and making magical things appear to happen. This kid never has any idea he's different until he stops Ghost Rider from killing his mom, and it's not like his only powers are related to the Ghost Rider. Like he wouldn't have figured out he was the son of Satan until he met Johnny. You'd think you'd accidentally give someone decaying powers or something, like one time, which is, by the way, not a great power to give your henchman when you're sending him to kidnap someone. Side note, what if he accidentally kills your son? If you're the devil, you'd feel pretty stupid about that as you destroy your own prophecy just giving a guy the wrong hellish ability. But that couldn't happen, right? Danny is part devil, with all the devil's powers. Yeah, except apparently returning crazy angel Zaratos to Johnny takes everything out of him, and then he's dead. Until Johnny saves him with the good spirit of Zaratos. So yeah, it does look like Blackout probably could have killed him. The devil's a moron. And then the dumbest thing in the movie happens. Just to validate this entirely manufactured character arc and to pretend like Johnny was doing the wrong thing by trying to get rid of an uncontrollable murder demon and live a life so he didn't have to die in order to stop himself from hurting people, which, call me crazy, seems like a reasonable desire. Johnny can suddenly heal people by tapping into the goodness of Zaratos. This grindhouse wannabe movie goes to the sappiest Disney-esque place possible. 
he can suddenly feel the angel part of Ghost Rider just because he knows it's there now. How come he couldn't feel that before? Or I don't know, maybe it's supposed to be because Danny is a good person and the writer came in through him? But I mean, that's wild speculation. I know hardly anything about the mythology is made explicit in this movie, but we're not told that either. So I have to assume Johnny just feels it now because Moreau told him about it. And that concludes his arc. He needed to use the bad thing for good because he had the choice to do that. Like, I guess Nadia is sort of doing by raising the child of the devil as a good person. Even though it turns out the Ghost Rider is not a bad thing inherently, which takes away his commonality with the kid and completely deflates the you-can-choose-what-you-want-to-do-with-your-dark-side message. And even though he didn't know it had the desire to do anything but kill and eat souls. Again, maybe that's supposed to be the parallel between Ghost Rider and Johnny, that now Zaratas is making a choice itself. It has a dark side, and it's choosing to use it for a good thing. But that's really flimsy, and I'm I'm not sure if that's what's going on. And now that he's tapped into that, what? Am I to assume he can control it now? Or that it will work for him? Or that it's not insane and twisted because it saved the son of the devil? Who knows? The movie ends right after that, and with maybe the most pointless voiceover I've ever heard. I mean, I'm glad it doesn't spell out the message of the movie, so at least it's not insulting about it, but I don't know why it's there at all. Johnny's a good ghostwriter now because he has blue flames all over his motorcycle, and he says, My name is Johnny Blaze. I'm the ghostwriter. I guess somebody saw The Dark Knight and thought that's how we dramatically end superhero movies now, with somebody saying the name of the title character over the hero on a motorcycle driving away. I like the audacity of some of Nick Cage's acting in this, as he's fighting to keep his sanity, and his who-cares-I-just-want-to-die attitude is sometimes really funny and almost endearing. The metal, mixed with traditional classical orchestral score, is excellent in a couple places. I like the way Ghost Rider looks and moves, and there's a lot of personality to him. His laugh sounds like a tire spinning just above the pavement, which is a really cool idea. But that personality is ruined by his suddenly turning benevolent, which means he's suddenly not crazy, for no good reason. And something similar happens with Johnny Blaze. His fighting to keep himself from losing his mind toward the beginning could have been compelling, but it's dropped too quickly in favor of a fatally flawed character arc. I like that the devil himself is the bad guy this time, but Claire and Hines' performance is mediocre. He's lacking in screen presence, and I know next to nothing about the character's strengths and limitations. The movie wastes no time getting into the action, but then the story is rushed, and every scene is shot like an action scene, whether it is one or not. I like the flavor more than the first movie, but somehow the story itself is worse. Oh, and Anthony Stewart Head is wasted as a monk who gets killed after two minutes on screen right at the beginning? Does that count as a cameo, or a great actor in a walk-on role? Either way, that's worth a .5 deduction all by itself. I'm giving Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance a 1.5 out of 4. Thanks for tuning in to the 12 Days of Superhero Rewind. We're doing this every day until Christmas, and every review was chosen by one of our patrons. I want to say thanks, as always, to all of our patrons, and if you would like to support us on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash for just $2 a month. You can get access to 
early episodes of Superhero Rewind, regular episodes, just three days early, and you can also get access to Geek Geekflution After Dark, my and Eric's uncensored talk show that we do twice a month. At the $10 tier, you can become a Patreon producer, and I'd like to th- say thanks to all of our producers right now, including Dylan Muschiello, Nick Manna, Eamon Singleton, Cletus Winslow, Remy LeBlanc, Derek Jacob, The Day Ghost, Michael Gulick, Magpie's Nest Productions, Kareem Roberts, Lot 10 Underground, Michael Mark Micheletti, Carl Maxey, Dimitri J, John Johnson, Jacob Schneider, Nathan Hanford, Aram Zangana, Joey Crouch, Sartage, Govin Singh, Ethan, Guidi, Caleb, Malik Myers, Lone Wolf Jedi of Gotham, Chewbacca's Lover, David Crabtree, Simeon Scott, Justin Hayes, Marie Flowers, Clark Whitfield, Ian McKee, and Jeffrey Patron. And if you'd like to request something for review on either Superhero Rewind or Science Fiction Rewind, you can do that at the $50 tier on Patreon. Thanks again for listening, folks, and I'll see you again tomorrow when we find out what I have been gifted this time to review on the 12 Days of Superhero Rewind. See you then.